0: I always say that startups are the wildest roller coasters. You can have your best day and your worst day, oftentimes in the same day. You really need to learn how to deal with the ups and downs and accept that there are things that you simply cannot control. Oskar Jertensson has been on a crazy ride for the past 14 years. Born in Sweden, he met one of his co-founders, Danielo Duraga, in Chile, where they first created Needish, a marketplace where people could advertise what they needed instead of what they were selling. Profitability was a big challenge, so they decided to pivot the company and renamed it Clan Descuento. The new business model copied Groupons, which only existed in the U.S. at the time. After just months of operation, Clandescuento was acquired by Groupon, and Oscar and Danny led the expansion in Latin America. They later took their entrepreneurial expertise into building Seahorse, a cloud-based photo storage and sharing platform. But that didn't quite work out how they expected. In 2015, a third co-founder who'd been working with them all along, Juan Pablo Cuevas, joined Oscar and Danny. From this partnership, Corner Shop was born, launched first in Mexico and Chile as an on-demand delivery service. In less than two years, conversations started with Walmart for a potential exit. The deal was announced in 2018, but after a long, stressful wait, the antitrust authorities in Mexico ruled against it moving forward. Having been on a similar journey myself... I've been exchanging personal struggles with Oscar for a while, and I'm excited to go deeper on some of his experiences here. In this episode, we talk about lessons learned, his main takeaways on leadership, and the emotional loops, dips, highs, and turns that founders go through. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast.
1: If I'd say the F word, we could delete it before we publish it.
0: If you drop an F bomb, first of all, it's not a family show, so it doesn't matter, and second... I might have to excuse myself. I've got a potty mouth. So <laughs> well, it's good to know. So, hey, welcome to the Latitude Four podcast. I've known your co founder, Danny, for a long time. We met yeah. back in 2011. I don't know if you know that. We met at South by Southwest, but I, we didn't really start, I guess me and you didn't really start talking until maybe the last year. We connected through a mutual friend, Martin Shrimp. And so I, I don't really know Juan Pablo. I knew Danny first, but you guys have been sticking together for a long time, building great stuff. I want to start the conversation off with with a WhatsApp exchange that we had, just to get right to it, just to kind of get <laughs> right to the the you know some interesting stuff. So uh, don't worry, there's nothing in here right. you know that you're gonna be embarrassed about. But I'm going back just I guess a couple months ago to April, and we've been chatting for a little bit and talking about you know we both were angel investors. I think share a passion for supporting founders, right? Yeah. I remember, I'm going to read you the message, and it says, Hola, regarding the weight, we're back at the beach with the family. Regarding regulators, we will be notified on Thursday that Kofesi sees risk in deal. We got a heads up, Friday I should have more intel. So that was April 28th. So last year? This is April 28th, 2019. Yes. So yeah, last year. I think most people that listen to this podcast are pretty informed about startups, but you had this deal with Walmart, right? Yeah, this is a, a year and a half ago, essentially, right? Yeah. Well, the deal with
1: Walmart is like from 3 million years ago. Um, but this particular text was one and a half years ago, a, a many years into that deal. I mean, that deal was started uh, a long time ago. Like three it, started,
0: years. it started only a few years in, in your company, right?
1: Yeah. So they were a big partner to us they approached us with the idea of an acquisition at a time when it seemed like a good outcome. And when we honestly were struggling to raise money on the private market, it was a great deal. I loved the deal. And we did the deal. And then from, (laughs) from the time that hands were shaken, you know, and then you get the LOI and then the the definitive agreement and then you file with Kofese and then you wait for... So like a lot of time passed and it was fucking horrible. So that's your first F-bomb right there. (laughs) Um, Because I'm (laughs) I'm not like a patient person at all. I know that patience is a virtue. I don't have that. I'm anxious and worried and I can't stand waiting, particularly if the waiting is out of like my control. It was painful, honestly. It was... uh,
0: it was hard. It was a tough period. Uh, and it was a long period. I-, I responded with that fingers crossed. And then your next text message was, hi, I still ca- can't commit to anything right now, including travel. I'll focus on family, just coping. Cofessi, MX Antitrust, has formally extended period. It's all a shit show. Families alternating between hotels and friends' places. It's not fun. Even if we get approval in May, I can't travel in June as all focus will be setting up new life in SF until new life is well-established. So, yeah, so
1: we made this decision to act on the signed and announced agreement as if it was a foregone conclusion, like if it was the deal. Because, you know, you you know, you read these, uh, uh, you read on TechCrunch, you read press releases that company A acquired company B and you, you know, everybody's happy and they're exciting statements and blah, blah, blah. And then, and then if you scroll way down below, like ads and whatnot, it says like subject to regulatory review. It never felt like a real thing. And going into that deal because of that experience and because our, our, our council honestly didn't uh, see much risk in that deal. So we announced the deal with Walmart, I think, in September 2018. And by Christmas, we left Mexico, we put our furniture in a container, shipped it to Oakland, went to Sweden for, for Christmas and New Year's. Uh, and to get our visas for the U.S. stamped in our passports, while we were waiting for this close of the deal, which would happen very soon, like January or maybe February. And our plan was to spend some few weeks in Sweden, then we go to Chile, where we have our biggest office. I can work there, and my wife's family is from there. So in Chile, is summer in February, so it was so long, so good, like pretty decent plan. And by like the latest, we would be in SF, the San Francisco, was maybe you know early March, or we had thought it would be sooner. Yeah, this special period in our life started where, for a bunch of reasons, we ended up staying at friends' places and hotels in Mexico, Chile, and Canada for five months with two kids in preschool age, and school age, just waiting. And at some point in the middle of this waiting, we heard that there was like real risk that the deal might not happen. So you're sitting in a hotel in Toronto and just kind of can't bear, can't cope the waiting anymore. And you're now preparing for two alternative futures. One is you sold the company to Walmart, and you're gonna set up an office in San Francisco with Walmart. Great deal, you love the deal. But at the same time, almost happened for two years, but it's never really happening. So just, and, and you have to prepare yourself to, to the alternative that it, it might not be a deal. And in that scenario, you're looking at a bank account which is running on fumes with a debt to Walmart, and, and not a nasty debt, a very, very friendly, awesome. Like Walmart has been awesome uh, to us. Throughout this period, but we owed them operating capital because they were loaning the company money during the antitrust review, which is very common. So we would end up with debt and no money, or having sold the company, it was still like maybe a month out. We'd stop doing board meetings with like the VCs were mentally checked out. Obviously, because I think our VCs said that in the history of their funds, they hadn't seen such an early stage deal being blocked by regulators. So nobody like thought saw it coming. So we had to start reimagining like what would it be to keep building and be excited about it and at some point start to tell the team, some of the top people in the team, like, hey, by the way, this could happen. I'll be honest, like by then, our future as an independent company was looking pretty good. I didn't really even want to, I, I didn't even know what I wanted, I think, at that point. It's like end of April, May. Uh, I just wanted to know. Like I just wanted the the wait to end because it was torture, we couldn't really operate, we didn't have the resources we worthy of having based on where we were as a company back then, there was never the idea to spend all those months with that little capital, which couldn't be adjusted either. the way the deal was made, how you submitted to it to the regulators so it was, it was shit, it was horrible, it was really horrible and then at the end of the day, the deal got blocked by the Mexican regulators
0: you know I remember when it did get blocked, and I read about it. I think you sent a link, you said you know something like only in Mexico you know like. Which obviously not only in Mexico, like i'm we've talked, I'm going through my own antitrust, which we'll leave maybe for later because this is an interviews about you, but hearing you, it's kind of cathartic to hear someone that's gone through a similar situation, and we kind of bonded on that as we're you know both in similar situations, you're through the other side of it, so I, and I'm still in kind of the the tunnel. I see light, but I hope it's not a train kind of situation. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, what's cool about that is that in that text exchange, I wrote to you, okay. I'm so sorry this happened, Oscar. It's complete and utter BS. You're going to rally and you're going to crush it. We're all here to help you in any way we can. And that was with a few other friends on on the text chain. And the bottom line, it was a blessing in disguise, right? And by the way, I love the way you responded to it because you posted on Twitter kind of this like, which there's an avocado behind you. And so it reminded me of that. It was, you know, Salió con un conejo del sombrero regulatorio y ahora qué? Keep calm and order avocados. I thought that was just
1: amazing. Well, we, mo- we don't do a lot of PR. And, like, we're pretty bad at PR and communications at our company. When we do, it's mostly for the internal audience. So, that was really a message to everyone working for Corner Shop and our partners and et cetera, too. And yeah, those days were insane, you know, and with my wife. And the reason we're in Toronto is because we have had it waiting in Mexico. We couldn't go to the U.S. before the deal had closed. Um, I don't remember why, with immigration or whatever. And then we had set up an office in Toronto, which was going to be part of the deal with Walmart. And we're still, we're partners there with Walmart now. They're a great partner to us. So we just wanted to get out of the resorts in Mexico. People are like, oh, that sounds amazing. And I'm like, if you go on vacation, it is. Not if you're waiting. <laughs> uh, but it's still, you know, it's a better place to wait than many others for sure. So we're in Toronto, we're there and just trying to like wait every week. We would think this is the week and they would add another week or two weeks. It wasn't like in February, they told you, oh, by the way, you're going to know in June. It's like in February, it was like early March and then early March. Oh, it's mid-March. And then mid-March is April. And it's April. Like end of April. if they had told us, you know, make it tell a plan for your life until June, because it's going to take four months, it would have been a different story. So anyway, we're in Toronto. And I'm like, I'm running 15K one day to cope, emptying the minibar the day after like to kind of cope in different ways, different days. I'm not getting any work done, refreshing stats and waiting and being angry. Uh, I'll just also be super clear that I, I'm not some crazy libertarians. I, I believe markets should be regulated. I believe in the role of the regulators. I don't think the time spent on these processes I don't think makes sense for young companies uh, with limited, you know, limited cash. Frankly, this doesn't make any sense. Anyway, so I was upset. It was hard. And our kids, you know, hadn't had missed school for six months. All that's on us, you know. I'm not blaming anyone else for that. But, but anyway, and then we finally got... So yeah, so the last week was the most... Like if this had been like a horror movie, like the last week was basically... Okay, they have announced on their website that they're going into the vote. So at Cofece, these these regulators, they're going into vote. And not until then did I learn that we don't necessarily find out that day. That was the worst part. Because first of all, it was like new information, like, because I don't know, I hadn't asked our council or they hadn't told us, or they told me I didn't listen, who knows, maybe they told me nine months before how the process works, but I couldn't believe it. What do you mean, like they vote and they don't tell us? No, because after they vote, they write up the resolution. Sometimes they'll give like a heads up or post the summary on the website. And sometimes it takes, some, it takes some time, quote, to write up the resolution. And I'm like, well, what waiting you mean, like, what, how much time? And then our council said, well, well, it's normally a couple of days. So I'm like, what days? And I, it's like back then for me, because I had waited for this, I think it was a Thursday that they were doing the vote or like a Friday, a Thursday or Friday. And we knew that for like a week. So that week I was like, okay, now we have a date. And you know, you, know, you can start relaxing. And anyway, trying to make this long story short. So they go in, they vote. So now I know that eight people on earth know. That was the most upsetting part of the experience. That eight, these commissioners, these eight people now know if our company is acquired by Walmart or if I have 30 days to find money for payroll. And the idea that they knew, but I didn't know, just seemed so incredibly unfair and just not cool, you know? (laughs) <laughs> and that's a wild understatement about how i really felt. So anyway, days passed, the weekend passed, the monday passed, and any minute we'll find out. At the end of the day all these are like, you know, first world problems obviously and we're in a great spot, but but it was it was tough. And then we got the notice that they had I got an email from the council saying uh, no la aprobaron or something like that. It was like a double negation or no no no, nah, I don't it was, I didn't quite understand it. And I had to read it like two times and like yelled to my wife they rejected the deal and I broke down crying i think the first time since my you know uh second son was born yeah i just cried on the floor just relief like the weight is over and like the certainty so that's the story
0: i think that like ups and downs of the startup life is just like i mean they're the wildest roller coasters right and the, the crazy thing about startup life is that i always, i've been saying this a lot recently is that your best day and your worst day are oftentimes the same day. Like, that's just how it is. Yeah, true. In some ways, probably relieved to know the answer because of the the stress. I mean, but you probably went into this thing thinking it was a done deal at one point, and then you started second guessing it because of the extended period of the process. But how long did it take you to like recover from that? Because you were leading from the front. I mean, you sent that message and then you had to rally the troops, right? You know, how did that process happen from the moment you figured it out how did you address the entire company? What was the message inside the company? And how do you extend that message to your whole company when you are so physically and emotionally overwhelmed by yeah, well, so unfavorable? I mean, I think
1: I cried for like two minutes and then I was back at work. And also to, to keep this honest, we had already lined up a convertible note from our existing investors because we know like going into the vote, like this is about yeah. making this shit up. Like our council told us, we're going into the vote and I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't know. And I asked him, like, but what's your best guess? Like, we don't know. Uh, it, they could they could approve it or they could reject it. So obviously, we had had calls with our board by then. And I knew that they were going to invest enough to, to, you know, for a couple of months. I had also written some communications for the team that was ready to send. Because once they announced to us, it takes like, two hours for them to post on their website. And then it's going
0: to be picked up by the press. You want to control that message, right? Like yeah. message. So I remember working
1: on the communications to rally the troops on the non-deal scenario, not knowing if there's a deal or not in the days leading up to this. It was, uh, I have that email. I'll forward it to you when I sent to the team. But um, I mean, then, you know, fast forward, everything that happened after uh, has been great for the company. If, if, it's starting a company, part of it is about you know ROI to investors and value and all that. We're definitely you know we, we got lucky at the end of the day because we we had grown so much uh, during this uh, process to have this deal fall apart and we were a much bigger company coming out of that process and the markets were strong last summer, so we ended up in
0: a better position. Yeah, I mean like 2019 was like an incredible year for LATAM like venture capital, yeah. stock bank arriving, dumping ungodly amounts of money in the startups and just the market was hot, right? Like the hottest yeah. ever yeah. So that was my read on it too. But that's like probably not the thing you want to hear when you have all this stuff going on. And I remember you actually told me something that you were still kind of like struggling with this afterwards, right? Like you don't just snap out of it. I'm sure you snapped out of it, got the team going, but I'm sure that there was like, you know, subsequent kind of repercussions of this of the fact that this thing fell apart. But I remember one thing you told me maybe twelve, six months after the deal You know, even during the the process, you guys were growing like crazy. I think you told me, like, I don't feel like I was useful as a CEO at one point when we were going through... Totally useless. I was, like, useless for six months. Mostly useless. So... Your team, man. Like... Yeah. And we
1: used that. So then when we kind of pitched the company, so we immediately, uh, like, updated our B-Deck and slapped a C on it to try to raise a C-Round. And part of the pitch was like we came out of that stronger not only because we were a bigger company with better economics but also because we learned that how well our you know baby was able to scale even without you know without supervision or you know with our like i, I just felt i just we came out of that process at the end of the day process was excruciating but we came out of it very very strong and convinced about what we were doing and the team was amazing
0: that's awesome man and then here you are month ago, you guys completed the transaction. It all comes around and the timing couldn't have been better. Your your business is performing super well. It's probably super strategic for Uber now, given the certain climate we're in. You guys brought it back around and you closed a deal that was probably two and a half, three times larger than the original deal, like a year and a half later, right?
1: Yeah. Um, So, again, process was... Wrong. Uh, I don't think startups should spend that much time in those processes. I don't think it makes sense. But the outcome was great in a, in, a, in a you know absurd way. And for us, not for Walmart. They always, when I tell this story, I try to remember to make sure to mention that there was another part to that transaction that was didn't get a better deal because it didn't happen. You know, they wanted to buy a company. It would have been a great fit for them. So uh, obviously very disappointing for them. And they were a great partner for us back then.
0: That's an amazing story. I've enjoyed our conversations because as I mentioned, I'm going through something similar and it feels eerily similar and like, yeah, it's going to, we'll probably find out this week. And then it's like, oh, so I'm supposed to like, by the time this, I'm hoping that like, I already have the news. I literally, I'm supposed to know like in a week or two from now. You should expect three months. It's better for your mental health. That's my lesson I'm taking away. is like, prepare my mind for this. Well, let's go back a little earlier to your, in your journey. I asked a couple, I asked a friend here that I mentioned early on, Martin Shrimp. I said, tell me something interesting about Oscar. You guys are friends. What, what is something that I can ask you? And he said, one of the most impressive things about you is that you made it big with Groupon. Groupon did the IPO. You made great money. And then basically, you invested it all into this new company, Seahorse.
1: No, I didn't, I didn't invest all, but I invested you know, a significant amount, uh, particularly taking into account that we didn't uh, get a salary for those two or two and a half years.
0: But one of the things he mentioned is that essentially you made some money and then you were in a tough spot uh, because it, it didn't pan out, but you'd, you'd bought some Bitcoin, right? During the time. Uh, a little bit. And that kind of saved,
1: <laughs> I guess it saved me a little bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, we part of this uh, group on IPO, uh, as I've told you, I'm not, used to talking about this publicly, but I guess the context here... I know know
0: for everyone that's listening, I had to twist Oscar's arm to have this conversation because he's like, I don't do that. I don't do that shit, man. So thank you for making the time. And it's great because there needs to be more stories told about this stuff. We just talked about a success story. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about the failures because we all have them. And I think that startup success is romanticized like massively. And I guess it's good because more people maybe jump in, but People aren't really psychologically prepared for the actual difficulty of what it is. I think it's you know, impossible
1: to be prepared for. Like, I think anything in life, right, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, whatever happens to you, it's pretty hard to be prepared for the big things. But yeah, so we first of all, we didn't sell the shares in the IPO. And after the lockup expired, every everyone that I know that likes me and that had more experience told me, don't be a fucking idiot. You know, I know the shares are down like 50% from the IPO or whatever, but you're still up from zero basis that you had. Just sell it, invest it in the market. And we were like, how? Because we had just left Groupon and we felt that, you know, they got their shit together. And clearly they did not, by the way. And I can't believe I thought that back then, but we didn't sell. And that was really how we lost (laughs) everything from that first exit. We didn't sell the shares. I think it IPO'd at like, I don't know, 30, 28, whatever. I think locked up, like the lockup expired at like 13. And I think I sold my first shares at like one and a half or like two or, or whatever. And then the cash proceeds from that deal, you know, inspired by Silicon Valley, was uh, together with Danny, were like aggressive on angel investing in Chile. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I don't regret it now. I did regret it a few years ago because, Couple of you know, I don't know how much, but way too much money went into startups that I didn't really kind of analyze much. And more like, you know, I thought that was, it was kind of a responsibility, you know. And I think it is in a way still. Like if you if you're successful in Brazil or in Colombia, it's still early days, you know. And I think everybody is. Everybody that I know are definitely becoming angel investors. And I think it's much better times now for that than 2000, 2010 was way ahead of the curve in in Chile. But anyway, so. So, between that and our own failed photo app, where we put a couple of hundred grand each me and Danny over the years, and didn't have a salary and living building a family in s f without a salary for like four years, so yeah, it was pretty rough, and I think not having money is not a problem, and having money is not a problem, and having money and then lose it, it's like that's that's really where you don 't want to be and yeah it was it was stressful because we we had this exit when we were like i don't know thirty. And then uh, totally wasted it in four or five years and ended up being older with kids and like no cred because we'd sold our company to Groupon, which turned out the worst IPO ever. So whatever cred there was in that acquisition, I felt at least wasn't worth much a few years later. I honestly don't think it was. I don't think I'm being paranoid or anything. So self-esteem was running pretty low. The photo app company, Seahorse, failed. We shut it down like Christmas 2014 didn't have much left to, to keep living that life in San Francisco. And we're looking at like, do I try to get a job? Like who would employ me? Like who, how would I like enjoy that? And uh, it was tough. So I'm very grateful and happy that, you know, corner shop, it's been a rocky ride, but the end of the day, uh, has been great outcome. Very grateful.
0: Yeah. And you guys, the three of you have been like, this is like your third or fourth thing together, right? Yeah, sort of third together with Danny, second together with Chuck. He's the success factor
1: with three founders of Corner Shop. Me and Danny, who are more seen in the press, I guess, more known in the ecosystem, and Juan Pablo Cuevas, aka Chaqueta, who was part of the first company and Corner Shops.
0: Tell me about the balance of you working together for like you know, I guess you and Danny for fourteen years now, and Juan Pablo Chaqueta, this is his nickname yeah, Chuck. Chuck he played soccer in, in
1: university when it was hot. He was wearing a jacket, even when it was hot. And Chaqueta, jacket in Spanish. I mean, jacket in Chilean Spanish, something very different in Mexican Spanish. I don't know if you okay. know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so he's called Chuck, C H A Q. And all the Americans that were on calls with now think it's Chuck, like Chuck Norris. It's
0: yeah, yeah. That's what I was Jack. that's what I understood. Jack. Nice and so tell me about like the the balance of the founder relationship and, I mean it says a lot that you guys have you know you've been a part of multiple things, that's a special thing when you figure that out and yeah what's the the secret of the success there?
1: So yeah, so first of all, I'm not a sole founder. I don't think I would ever like be a successful sole founder. I'm a I love having this team of three. I mean we're 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 trying to. I'm, I'm really one of the things I'm trying to do now is to kill the founder concept um, and kind of really use that context a lot less because we're a bigger company and we're you know a lot of other people that are equally important at this stage. So, but obviously early on it's a lot about the founders. We decide everything, and yeah, we worked together since. So those two guys have worked together since 2004. So they had a company before we had our first company together, uh, like a dev shop in uh, in, in university. And so we worked together for 14 years and I love them. They're two of my closest friends. I have the deepest respect for them personally and professionally. And I think we fight all the time, like every day about something, but it never lasts till the evening ever. Not once. I think I mean, seriously. So that, I think it's the amazing, like, you cannot not fight with your co-founders because that means you're not emotionally invested in what you're building. If you agree with everything, that's ridiculous. And if there's no fights, well somebody's being apathetic or lying. So, a lot of fights, but somebody always wins with a better argument. Like we don't have any nasty boats like two against one. Like we've never had that either, I think. And we've never had a let's call it material issue about anything, which is kind of amazing given what's at stake and the amount of work. And uh, and I think there's a deep kind of sense of shared kind of basic values. Like we're politically aligned mostly, which I think is important, you know, Uh, specifically given how how the world is becoming more divided. I think that's something you rarely hear, but I think that's key. The way we view... Our role as an employer, um, things like that. Uh, not talking about like should the you know should the button be red or green on the app, but more like fundamental things that has to do more with values and kind of sense of humor and like movies we like or whatever. I think a lot of shared stuff there that makes it all work. And then I think we have a just respect for the other guy's expertise. Know, it's a really ridiculous word, but I mean. Our three roles are very clear and distinct. I'm the CEO, and Danny's the CTO, and Juan well, Pablo the COO. And I surely couldn't, I for sure, couldn't do their jobs. They would probably do a better job doing my job. But hopefully, there's something unique to my, the way I do my job. And then I think we all know that uh, together, we're stronger. We're equal part founders. And we kind of leave the other person alone and doing what they do the best and we we're, but we're there for each other sounding boards all the time like asking all kinds of things and obviously like big decisions you know MA and financing etc they're very much involved I mean, yeah and i'm very grateful again using the word grateful i don't think i've ever used that so often in, in, in a one hour conversation but but yeah they're amazing
0: it's really a critical fundamental part and I, and i get what you're saying about it's less about the founders at some point. When you're scaling a company, your whole objective is to to position people inside the company so that they can take the burden and share the burden. And some founders, I think, have trouble doing that. Like when they're when they get to a certain, you know, they, they want to kind of stay at front and center. And but I think it's the only way to to really scale. What are your takeaways in terms of, you know, you've led a couple of companies now with your co-founders? What is the lesson you've learned about what makes a good leader? what is it that really just grabs you about leadership that is important in a startup? Like you, you read about startups with what, from the outside, seems like
1: completely dysfunctional cultures that are doing extremely well, right? And so I can't speak for generally like what I think or know about leadership. I can tell you, at our company, leadership is about being the best individual contributor at, uh, in the area you're leading. So it's not some kind of oh the thirty thousand foot view the strategic you know alignments and like pointing with a whole hand and whatever it's like you're the best person doing that job so you run the area of you know fifty people doing that job and that's that's how we look at leaderships you you lead by example and instant feedback good and bad Uh, like we don't do the whatever quarterly reviews and I can't fucking wait to tell people that they you know did something horrible or did something amazing. I'll do it immediately. And I want everybody on the team to do it like instant feedback so we can just move forward and kind of root out bad behavior and encourage good behavior immediately. So I would say, like, just trans, and that's, that I think is just no bullshit. I think, like, if you want to talk to someone about their performance and you're willing to wait for a month, that's just inherently bullshit to me. Like, that's just not, that's just dishonest in some weird way, some weird corporate dystopian way to like, uh, I have some things I should talk to Brian about, but I'll wait until our monthly review. Like that's, that's it. And I know, and I respect a lot of people who work like that. It's just not for me. It's not for us. So
0: super uh, inefficient too, right? Like, what are you waiting for? Or like, does there does
1: was some, like so great individual contributors. Uh, like if you're running editorial, it should be a good copywriter. If you're running uh, iOS, you should be a good iOS developer. If you're running design, you're a great designer and so forth, you know? And then, just real, staying on top of people. I believe in... We worked for Rocket Internet. We sold our first company to Groupon. It's powered by Rocket Internet, their international efforts. So I reported to Oliver Sumber for a few months. <laughs> and they would send these, like the handbook, like the holy handbook of micromanagement. It would say, if you share this outside the company, you have to pay 1 million euro fine. It would say on the cover of this, like 90 page long deck about how to be the perfect micromanager. And some of that is... Frankly, amazing. Just stay on top of people, make sure shit gets done, like just fast and like people working in the details and lead with example and just honest. For me, that's leadership. yeah, I appreciate.
0: One other thing I wanted to ask you about. This is like a very specific question, but like I've talked to like a lot of people, a handful of people about you in different circumstances. Your name has come up, and I remember someone describing you guys having the best internal reporting they've ever seen of a startup. Which is a very random question, but like, is that a thing inside your company where you guys have because you know access to data and like information, yeah, is that something you're passionate about or something, or how does that come to fruition? How do you make that part of your DNA? I don't know if it's true anymore, but it yeah. was
1: definitely true, I think, the first one or two years of this company, because in our previous company that we ran together, which became Group on Latin America, it was B2 C e-commerce. A lot of sales reps, a lot of contracts, a lot of deals, like daily deals. So we learned too slow in that company. Having your shit together really matters, and knowing every aspect of your business and really understanding like all the KPIs that drive customer growth, whether it's uh, you know new customers or retained customers, really matters. So we launched with like all that, like a battery of reports and alerts and. And daily reviews of KPIs, like hourly alerts on Slack of a wild amount of KPIs. Um, I think for many first-time founders, it's more of an afterthought. Like you launch the app as it doesn't have a back end yet or whatever. And then if it has a back end, it definitely doesn't include reporting on, on your first version. So then then you go out and talk to investors and they ask you about your cohorts. And you're like, shit, what's a cohort? That was our that was our first startup. Yeah, so we really Set out to be anal micromanagers of so many KPIs and so many intersections of KPIs. Like I think we we did a good job there.
0: Yeah, I feel like a lot of uh, early stage founders, first time founders, they don't really get that right, and they don't really obsess about the data as much. It's something that you have control over that, and you have clarity over that. It's something that fundamental part. Well, that's awesome. I mean, I talked to Andrew Braccia and he said that you're one of the most impressive CEOs he's ever worked with. And that guy invested in- Is Field. He said that. He said that to me. He says that about all his CEOs. I know. I actually said that. I'm like, yeah, you, you said about all your CEOs. And he's like, no, no bullshit. He, he said that to me. So he had you up there, man. And there's something about building a business in Latin America. Like there's a lot of opportunities, but there's also a lot of challenges. So it takes a skill set to be able to navigate a lot of the, the things that you might not see in the U.S., difficulties that arise from things like regulatory decisions and other things. I love the candor that you approach things with. I think that that's my observation is probably that is one of your greatest qualities as a leader. So I asked you about the leadership thing because in all my interactions with you, it's always been like really authentic. And we get to the heart of shit when we start having lunch in San Francisco. We swap a few stories designed to also like make the other person feel a little bit better and share those like you know a little bit of vulnerability and share the, the the ups and downs of the roller coaster ride that's entrepreneurship. So I think what you've done for the ecosystem is awesome, man. I really appreciate that. And one comment on that. So first of all, just because
1: of the comment from Andrew, uh, I'm not thinking he will ever listen to this, but I really want to take the opportunity to thank the All and Excel and JSV and Quandam, the four VCs that invested into our company they've been amazingly supportive throughout these years. And I've, you know, Andrew is on my Slack daily emotional sounding board, you know, like everything from small shit to like big strategic stuff. If anyone listening can get an opportunity to work with Excel out of Silicon Valley or or all VP out of Mexico, strongly recommend both of those funds. The other two are uh, less likely to invest in Latin America, but on the honesty, I think it's true. I think we have a style of being very transparent and no bullshit. We, we call it no bullshit. Like, so not being honest is kind of by default bullshit, right? So it's really bad for fundraising. That's what I wanted to say. I think it's just made our fundraising harder uh, throughout the years. I'll go into these meetings and I'll be honest about what's not doing well. And uh, we're, we're, we're bad at Presenting our numbers in the most, in the best way, or whatever. It's seriously, I'm not, and I'm not saying great fundraisers lie, not at all. But that, that kind of projecting success and total conviction and security, and like, I totally know where we're headed and there's no doubts, and like, that's just not really how we kind of build Corner Shop. And uh, I think there are benefits to that. I think it's good for culture and uh, and, and team morale to see that can be open about your. Insecurities, and you don't have to pretend or posture to be a leader, but it's bad for fundraising. Period. It's not good.
0: I like those businesses that step function. Right? It's like here we are. We're going here. We're going here. It's very consistent and it's rise. And the step ups are are nice, but they're not twenty x step ups. And that's just much easier to like as a CEO and as a founder to control because you're not setting this expectation. Then all of a sudden, you're dealing against this crazy situation. And it's funny you mentioned that about where you are. I actually was in Excel's office in 2011, 12, I think. And I pitched Excel. And one of the partners there asked me when I thought we would pass our competitors. I said 18 months was an unsatisfactory response. And they ended up passing on me. It wasn't Kevin Afruzzi who ended up investing later on, but it was a partner there. And Ultimately, we ended up passing them in 12 months. I, I was like, you know, I was conservative in my response. And probably yeah. an investor hat, like they put it on. They're like, oh, when they say 18, it's really 36, you know? But
1: so part of it could be the the timing itself of your answer. But I think also consider this. I think investors just want a certain kind of alpha male mentality kind of person to invest in. So they're not really, it doesn't matter if you say 18 months or 18 years, it's more like they want you to be like, we're going to fucking kill them. Like, what do you mean? Pass them? They're going to die. Like we're going to, who are they? Competitors. Like we don't have competitors. We're unique. You know
0: what I mean? Like, listen, if you look at the data, it kind of supports that, right? Women are much less likely to get funded. It's a, it's a massive problem. Yeah. Massive opportunity for investors because there's amazing women that are are getting passed on because they don't have the. The brashness that maybe a kind of type A male CEO that just thinks that they can 't do anything wrong that 's an interesting yeah. thing.
1: I wonder if that becomes then a self fulfilling prophecy where most of the people who get funds are those types, so then people think that most most of those, like those types are better at building companies, but I feel when we 've kind of pitched corner shop and hasn't we haven 't done well then i 'm like, how is it possible that these other companies are raising money? And I know their metrics, like I know their apps or whatever. And it just doesn't. And we can't even race like at a fucking third of the valuation or whatever. It's been a, it's been a frustrating part of of our journey for sure. And I and I think that I'm to, I'm to blame for part of that for sure. And but it doesn't mean that we're less aggressive or less we want to win any less. It's just that we project it differently. And and so anyway, that was that's for another
0: podcast. I think you should yeah, but, dive yes, you- into that one thing that happens is you build a track record at that point, it doesn't even matter anymore. Right? Yeah, you get to a point where it's just like, Okay, but to get there, though, I I think it's it's sad, if only, like super
1: alpha males uh, are invited to and clearly, it's not only super alpha males, because I know a lot of really nice, friendly like you entrepreneurs. So but I think that um, anyway, that's for a different discussion, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, but I like the perspective about it. And it's interesting. There's a lot of psychology that goes on, right? In this whole investor game. Huge. It's, it's only psychology.
1: It's a FOMO. Create FOMO. It's all yeah. about creating FOMO. It's like... Yeah. And, I, and I was way too old when I realized how that's done. You know, like, I got to send the deck to 50 investors the same day and make all of them believe that someone else is writing the lead and you got to have the... You know, it's it's like mechanics almost. Yeah. It's much more science than art, for sure. And and I always underestimated the deck. Like, we're like... Marketing lasts as a company in many ways we really are uh, we don't we, today we discussed we don't have an about us on our website I mean there's just a basically like there's weird things I think about us um, that has to do with not being PR kind of marketing uh, when I say marketing I mean like ex- external outside the product inside the product experience I think we're pretty good at marketing like our bags our copywriting and all that but outside the product experience we suck so. I think our decks or fundraising, we would be like, oh, we're going to start fundraising Monday and I'll do the deck on, on the Friday because they'll, you know, they'll love the data because the KPIs are good. So I was always like, well, if the KPIs are good, they're going to see that and they're going to get it. So in a way, very arrogant. It's and, a bit naive, maybe too. But yeah, naive slash arrogant. Naive is a better <laughs> kind of way to put it.
0: The funny thing about that is a little bit more true. I think in a growth company, the metrics become more important. The story is so fundamental in the seed, the pre-seed, the series A, that's where it becomes. And the problem is if you're unsuccessful at that, you're almost seen as this pattern of like a company that like, if you're not nailing it from the beginning, it's like you very rarely all of a sudden like, oh, we have this other big story now. It's almost like it needs to be designed like that from the very beginning to set you off on the track.
1: For sure. And that's where you see like hopefully that's what you're helping your companies with. Part of it. Like if you look at the I, the YC companies, they're great at fundraising. Like that's really what that's they cool. that's what they do, you know, and, and 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 that's very, very valuable. And I think I still probably don't quite appreciate uh, the importance of that.
0: Well, I would take a kind of hustling a CEO founder that's like able to GSD get shit done and make it happen a hundred times out of a hundred times over someone that can just tell an amazing story. But unfortunately, the person that can tell the story oftentimes gets yeah. above. love. And it's fair. It's, it's fair, but it's, uh, it's interesting. You mentioned your investors. You mentioned when you first started out, I guess, going back to 2007, there's no funds, right? Like who's investing in 2007 in Latin America?
1: Luckily, Vences Casares was, you know, Lau.
0: Vences is an investor in my company too.
1: Of course, He's in all the good companies in Latin America. He must be one of the most successful angels down there. So he really was key to us. Like If I look back, luck is such a fundamental component of at least our entrepreneurship journey, the way that randomly Vince replied to a cold email that Danny sent to him because Danny... I think he, Danny, like went to the bathroom in someone's office and saw like a magazine you could read, or maybe not the bathroom. Doesn't matter. But the, Vences was on a cover of a magazine, and like, oh man, that guy! I remember him. Let's, I'll email him. So he emailed someone who knew someone who had an email that was maybe Vences' correct email. So he, and Vences replied. <laughs> Just such a random thing. Uh, not knowing Wences now, it's not a random thing. He's amazing. Also, uh, specifically, I think, I think people story. are
0: going to start listening to this and then like scanning the internet for Wences' email address. So, so he invested, and that made
1: it easier to uh, attract a few other angels. And they were like Chilean businessmen, but also like family friends, like my mom, Danny's mom. And our first round was
0: five hundred thousand. Yeah, I guess the the Wences signal, right? Like that's something that Latin America lacked particularly back then is having someone that had like a reputation back you was like an instant way to yeah. help you wences was that signal cuz he'd been part of his success story and had like tons of experience in investing and a founder i'll tell you a crook story about wences real quick cuz this is kind of funny a couple of years ago i reached out to wences as i was trying to think about my next thing i wanted to do you know i said hey wences i'd love to like get together with you and he responds with yeah, I'm in Argentina. I'm in down in Patagonia uh, for the next nine months. So it'll have to be when I, when I'm back. And and so I literally respond with him, respond to him. Can I come visit you there? And he responds back. Like, he's like, you want to come all the way down here? (laughs) And so I literally bought a ticket to fly. Like four days later, I flew to Sao Paulo, stopped in, said hi to my office. And then I caught a ticket. All the way down to visit him. And I had a scheduled meeting with him. I'm like, I'm gonna meet you on, I think it was like a Tuesday in the afternoon. In San Martin. In San Martín de los Andes. Yeah. I was in Buenos Aires. I like was almost there. And I stupidly missed my flight to like miss the meeting. So I'm like, I literally just traveled for like 24 hours. I had one more flight. And I'm like, I am just the biggest idiot. And so I I ended up buying another ticket to Bariloche, and then I drove from Bariloche. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to be, it was a buddy of mine. And I was looking at crypto and looking at all this other stuff. And I wanted to just pick his brain. And he ended up like basically saying, hey, don't worry about it. Just come anyway. And I joined him and I had dinner with his family and like all their neighbors, like a a meet and greet dinner with all of his neighbors. Totally like the awkward guest that invited himself. I sat next to, you know, Bell, his his wife. And like, they were just like the most amazing hospitable
1: they're so cool we were there at a barbecue a few weeks ago with the family and so i he invited me and danny first me alone and then me and danny to stay at his house for like a month in in outside palo alto in 2008 like for a month (laughs) and they had young kids he's they're the coolest they're so
0: i rolled up and he had like a gigantic blade on his hip you know the guy's like legendary but i think the key thing here is like having those early people that take a bet on you, right? And I mean, you probably were inspired by him and others like that supported you when you made all those angel investments in 2010. You're probably just like, couldn't have done this without the support of someone like Wences. Mickey was like that for me, uh, who's business partner and many others. And so that's something- well, for sure. That's what I said. I think it, it
1: is, it's a responsibility. I think that we were doing it maybe a bit irresponsibly, but it's nevertheless a responsibility. I think everybody who has success in the market should uh, invest parts of their proceeds. And it could be time. It doesn't have to be money. Like, but, but like significantly add value back into the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, I fully agree. That's kind of what I want to dedicate the next uh, 10 years of doing. Latin America is an amazing place, and it's been amazingly good, I think, to both of us. And totally. there's something, something special about it, right? I mean, having having lived in multiple countries. We, met, we live in San Francisco now, which we love. but I we miss latin america we miss
1: spanish and the uh, you know the culture and uh, i don't know everything's later dinners are later and you wake up later and i don't know it's
0: well listen uh, just kind of coming to the end of the interview here um, you know so you've got this deal with uber now and i think you said por primera vez tenemos capitalización para poner en marcha proyectos so what's next man
1: yeah so we have we're we're doing things that uh, the world will see <laughs> I don't know if they're that exciting. But uh, no, there are a lot of uh, projects in different front. Like one, one we announced uh, a couple of weeks ago, a big partnership with Senkusud, one of the biggest grocers in South America. And had a call today. We have a lot of calls with them now. It's a pretty big deal. And we're going to build dark stores together. So that's very exciting. And kind of expand on our business model and something that we're hopefully doing with other partners soon in other
0: markets. So That's fun. For people listening, dark stores is basically you have all the supply of all the goods, and then you basically order online, and it gets brought to so you, kind of like dark kitchens, but dark yeah, stores. I mean, it's basically, I mean, our uh, so the size of corner shop in some of the
1: mature markets is to the point where it becomes a big problem for the stores because there's there's too many independent contractors in these stores competing you now elbow to elbow in the aisles with foot traffic. So the retailers would rather prioritize their foot traffic, which makes total sense. So the idea is that you. You move the e-commerce picking operation into dedicated hubs. Like dark stores is a bad name. Like call, call, call it an e-commerce fulfillment center. But that is not that different from a supermarket. You know, it has a lot of thousands of products or tens of thousands of products, and it's in an urban area, but it you know it doesn't have to have all the fanciness and the perfect location for a kind of food traffic uh, store. So there's certain benefits. So that we're working on that. We're also you know, allowing ourselves to invest in some projects that might or might not work—nothing uh, crazy, but just—you know—that's that, what I meant with that tweet. We now have time to build things that might not go live until six months from now, and—and and that might not be very impactful, but it's okay to dedicate a couple of you know, a few people to work on that for a while, but we're doing software things. It's, nothing so
0: it's that when you're, when you're running a company and you're also under the gun financially, and you've got this kind of competitive landscape, it's hard for you to think like super like moonshot long-term. Yeah. Or do you feel like, you know, you're able to do that a little bit more now? Yes, exactly. We're, totally.
1: You know, I've moonshot. I don't, I don't want to say moonshot because I think of Google's moonshots and they're like flying cars or whatever. Like we're not building okay. any flying cars. We don't have the the capital nor the ability, I think, but, but definitely
0: long, long, long-term initiatives. Right, long-term, long-term.
1: initiatives. Yeah. Right now, we're in the process of repurposing some of the core, like the core team, to be working on not the day-to-day stuff. Um, so to let kind of a second generation of core team kind of take much bigger responsibility, and to shift some of the very very core people, including some of the founding, like the founding team's time, to projects. That will see the light in a couple of months, and that are you know bets in slightly different directions. Not necessarily super intuitive to what we're doing today. Always uh, leveraging everything we've built. You know, we have stores and shoppers and brands and retailers, and it's super fun. Like I, I consider this forget if we forget about the whole home office thing, which I find just depressing. I'm, it's not for me. I, I like to work together with people. But other than that, this is really this is the honeymoon of startup that I'm experiencing now. It's like the the kind of the commitment and the speed of decision and seeing it more as a hobby than a job for many people on the team of a startup with the resources of a big company. I never really experienced that, so that's kind of a dream in a way come true, like really. And it's also a bit kind of a little bit mind blowing, and you know, it's kind of we're big now. We're fifteen hundred employees you know, tens of thousands of contractors shopping on our platform, active, big responsibility. And we can really build something very meaningful and everlasting. We could also totally fuck it up. And that's the challenge, right? That's, that's what makes it fun. And uh, it's happy times at Corn Shop for sure.
0: Oh, Listen, man, this has been a super enjoyable chat. I super appreciate the conversation and, and uh, thank you for all, your sharing your story. And I know that you hate this stuff, kind of don't like to be public with all these details but i think it's great for founders to hear it and it's it's motivation because you know you were in the knee deep in shit at one point and then you you figured out how to get out of it and now you're kind of uh, on the other side of it so i think that people need to hear those challenging stories and and it gives a little bit more you know kind of hope for the founders in the tough moments and resilience is like at the core of what we have to do as founders thank you bud really appreciate it thank you Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Oscar Jertensen, co-founder of Cornershop. Each week, we'll be talking to great founders and investors like him. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and check out latitude.com to find out more about the Latitude Fellowship Program. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Until next time.